0: Another episode of Calubroid in Colubrid and Colubroid Radio, but the Broid before the Brid. Anyway, uh, yeah, Zach here, and we've been dealing with a couple technical difficulties, but we're gonna—it's gonna work this time. So, for a little flustered, that's what's going on. this reality of the situation. Uh, but with me, as always,
1: Matt. How are you doing, Mister Most? Doing wonderful, man. Um, great start to the weekend. We started cooling down some animals already. Um, you know this starts to become my breather for the time and kind of a mental check on hatching out several hundred animals. And now we get to take a little bit of a break here.
0: Yeah. My, my, it, this was the first cold week here in West Virginia. Um, Our nighttime lows were dipping into the upper forties. So definitely saw a response in some of the animals feeding um, vigor, if you will, uh, yesterday when I was feeding my collection And, and yes, fall is definitely Upon us, it will very soon we will be cutting off our breeders and they will be going on to their long winter's nap. So, uh, updates for me, we always do our little just what's happened in the meantime between this and last episode. Um, first and foremost, uh, Matt and I had a lot of really good feedback on our um episode with John, so we're happy that he did that and and we're happy to hear that we're kind of hitting the mark, which is. What we're trying to do with this wonderful little podcast of ours. Um, as far as an update with with me and the animals that I'm taking care of, both here at the university and at home, I've received a couple animals. Uh, when we had our first episode, I mentioned in that that I had an uh, Andean milk female that was desperate for a mate, and our good friend Rob Stone shot me a message after he listened and was like, yo, I've got two adult males because I don't have a female, so... Uh, rob thank you those males are now at my home they're currently going through their uh, quarantine and hopefully they will be breeding with my female so i can produce one of the more obscure milk snakes in the hobby today uh also received some kukri snakes that were born th- these were travis wyman's production many people that follow travis have you know, know that he was really successful uh they were and i i butcher the species name on this thing oligodon purporescence and talk about a fun species i've never fed a snake liquefied egg before i fed them a lot of different things but you know, watching those little guys lap up their their food they pretty awesome and the other thing that's awesome about them as you've picked up by now if you've listened to the previous episodes is that i like things that want to make me bleed and oligodon definitely wants to make you bleed i learned that i grabbed one of them and I have been kukreed. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> um, and then I picked up some uh, a couple pitch of office and the mad hog pair that I l- illuminated to when we were had Jen on on lot, on our episode sorry, on for her episode. They're now in my care. And I can flat out tell you the dichotomy in behavior between a captive born Madagascar hognose snake and a wild caught Madagascar hognose snake. Jennifer alluded to it; she was spot on. These guys are full of piss and vigor, huffing, neck fanning. Uh, they slam mice off tongs. So I'm ecstatic that those are in in my care. I've, I've got the chapter in the upcoming hognose snake book, the other hognoses, and I think I might actually finally be able to keep a pair of those things alive for multiple years. I always feel bad for the imports and, and the fact that I've got captive bred animals now is pretty awesome. So that's really my updates. Um, I'm well, I guess got another update. We're heading out a couple of the graduate students and I to Kansas on Thursday. I don't know what day that will be relative to when the podcast comes out basically right at the end of September. And we're hopefully going to get some images of wild Heterodon, nasicus, the Western hogs, and then going to be taking just a ton of data on soil percentages, soil types, rock strata, crevice depths, crevice temperatures, crevice, like everything about their micro macro habitat. And then looking at some places where some of the uh, classic Western hog lit came from. There was a guy named Platt who did his dissertation in the early 60s, and I'm going to basically retrace his steps for the book. And that's what I'm doing while I'm out there. And then my other, my graduate student Erin Allison, who's kicking ass and taking names. She's doing a really cool thesis on snakes' perceptions and with with people, and basically how we message for snakes to get people to actually care about snakes and not want to kill everyone they see. And as part of her thesis, we need to get some uh, videos and imagery of rattlesnakes. And there's Crotalus in Kansas, so we're hopefully going to find some of those and take some videos of them in the wild to kind of add to her thesis project, which is kind of unique for a biology-based master's degree. So that's that's my updates. That's what's happening. What's up with you in your world, Matt?
1: Oh, man. After seven years of searching, I finally picked up a pair of albino Applegate gophers. Yeah, I've been looking for them for years. <laughs> and the problem is, is I was very... Stringent on the fact of the Applegate lineage, mm-hmm. and you know it, it's funny how things pop up in the circle of friends that you have and people with connections. And someone messaged me and said, "Hey, I've got an old timer out west who works with them, and I, he has some." You just got to be patient. So after months of texting and calling back and forth, finally got them in my collection. They're doing great, um, slamming pinks like crazy um, I also kind of messing around and changing a couple of things that how I keep some of the different Asian old world rats and in that yeah. I purchased um, some new racks and yesterday after leaving the house came back home and a tub was pushed forward about half an inch Oh God. and there was no snake inside of the tub so Maggie and Stephanie were downstairs in the basement and lots of crevices and lots of cursing, swearing, throwing boxes around, you know,
0: trying to find an animal.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So finally I'd go, you know what, whoever finds the snake, I'm going to give $100 to just to increase the odds. Mm -hmm. Three minutes later, Maggie goes, hey, isn't this it? And it was crawling (laughs) on the back of the rack. Uh so now she's got a hundred dollars and she's trying to figure out what she's gonna do with that hundred dollars. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. As soon as money gets involved, Murphy shows up and's like, hold my beer.
0: You're out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So that was the excitement. Um, so now I've gotta go back and try to figure out what's the best way to retrofit this rack that I thought mm-hmm. was gonna be a great idea. And I'm sure I'll have some more information on that. But Maggie did take some of her money and bought some fabric and is making bows with snake patterns um, for it as kind of just a hobby kind of Mm -hmm. deal. So I'll probably post some pictures up here in a little bit um, just relative to that design because it is pretty cool. Um, But other than that, you know, really winding down the end of the season. I think this week I'll have another clutch of red and black snakes from Africa hatching. So oh, that'll sweet. be cool to see some more of those in, in the captive sector. Um, the wild caught versus captive born are extremely different. Um, hopefully, you know, I think Zach and I will try to put something out on those, um, here coming up mm-hmm. soon. Um, we Zach and I actually have a couple of things down the loop and, um, I, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for some good information not only from the captive husbandry side, but also for the scientific community to add a number of different aspects of biology that wouldn't be seen from field herping and field biology. Yep, 100%. I, I,
0: one of my personal goals is to take herpetoculture and herpetology, the science, and then the the, the applied aspect and just show the world how you can merge them both and how they aren't antagonistic to each other, but in reality are very synergistic and need each other. Uh, And, you know, Matt and I are a match made in heaven for that, given that Matt tackles all these taxa that are brought in from all over the planet. And I obviously have the academic background and so does Matt. So it's kind of perfect to make this happen. And then I have a Overabundance of students that are always wanting to do stuff. So we're we're getting the students involved with this as well. So we'll keep you all abreast of what we're doing on that front uh as it proceeds. But no, I'm looking forward to that. That's that's pretty awesome. So are we ready to jump into this? Yes, I don't
1: see why not. All
0: right, (laughs) yes, very good.
1: All right, hold my beer.
0: We're holding beer, we're praying. (laughs) <laughs> it's gonna hold. So part of the reason why we are having potential issues today is that we have our first international guest. So we have Chaz from Snakes and Adders with us today. Uh, anybody who has looked up any kind of content on any colubrid on YouTube has probably bumped into a myriad of you know videos, and you're gonna almost certainly hit Chaz's videos. And one of the things that I love about Chaz's videos is there's I mean, I'm not pulling punches today. There is a tremendous amount of crap out there. And then you get to Chaz's videos and we're talking about like the climactic variables and the country of origin and there's you know citations to literature and there's book references. And to an educator like me, it doesn't get any better than that. And I'm going to give Chaz some props because many of you know that I have this assignment in my herpetology and herpeticulture class, both for the graduate level and the undergrad level where the students have to go out and basically do a big deep dive on natural history for whatever taxa they're going to be working on. And I can flat out tell you that Chaz's videos show up in the bibliography of that assignment fairly routinely. And when I see those videos, I take a deep breath of relief. I'm not going to name names, but when I see other videos, you know, I might be thinking, oh, Jesus Christ. So (laughs) anyway, you know, that's where we're at. So, without further ado, Chaz, how are you doing today?
2: I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, we're 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 very happy to have you. So, you know, we have we, done our introduction. In case you don't know, uh, where Snake Snatters is, uh, Chaz is based out of Great Britain, um, and we kind of ask this standard question, uh, and uh, we're going to ask it of you. So, how did you get your start? In herbs, where did where did all of this originate?
2: Uh I it started at a friend's house called Duncan. I'd gone round, I suppose you'd call it for a play date. I was ten years old, and yeah. uh he said, uh, I've got this this pet snake, would you like to meet it? And uh just the moment that he withdrew this little western hog nose from its box, that was it. That was all she wrote. <laughs> all she wrote. Uh it was love at first sight.
0: Very, very cool. So, you know, I'm obviously about to go on a trip for hognose snakes. So that's a pretty, I, I can understand how a hognose snake could grab someone's attention and then steer them towards the rest of, you know, what, what they're going to do with their advocation later on in life. I, so, I couldn't get over
2: the way it felt, the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the holding it in your hand and the way that it moved and, and the scales and the rough feel that the heterodons have. It just, it it captivated me completely.
0: So, so that was at the age of, did you say 10, 12 10, 10. Okay. So, you know, was it throttled down, fill the house with snakes at that point, or did we have to get (laughs) past the ever present parent bottleneck that many of us have to, to deal with or contend with?
2: Yeah. So it involved lots of going home and explaining to mom and dad how I simply had to have a snake and uh, was met with aghast faces uh eventually eventually after working on them for some time i i managed to win them round to the idea of a snake but the problem was that my mom suffered with anaphylaxis from mammals so she reacted to we didn't know whether it was going to be an issue because the prey was obviously dead frozen and we would defrost it but we needed to come up with an option that didn't involve mammals as a prey source. So I started researching at my dad's behest. He said, you've got to know what you're doing. Thankfully, he, he was an incredibly cerebral academic guy and he sort of said, well, you've got to do this right if you're going to do it. So let's go down to uh, Sheffield library and let's, let's get the books out and, and, and do, do the research. And we started I don't know, orbiting garter snakes, water snakes, grass snakes, these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Um, and at which point my first snake was a broadbanded water snake. So uh, what's that? Is that is that confluence? It's uh, confluence. It yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, that, that was my first snake. And I was, I was 10 when I got that. So.
0: Oh, fantastic. So when, when the snake shows up and now it's living in the house, a lot of people, when that happens, there's like, there's the week one, week two, week three of absolute fascination. And then you get to like week four and it starts to wane a little bit. And then week five, it wanes. Was there, I'm picking up given that you now own this shop, that it really didn't wane much. No. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how like, you know, once you have the snake in, in hand at the, at your home, what happens then? Did the fascination just explode? Or, or was it a different, you know, a different angle to the already exploding fascination? I always wonder, you know, you always hear about, like, I got the snake. And then you don't really hear much about what happened once you got this, the snake.
2: W- once I got the snake, I discovered that it was savage. <laughs> and wanted, wanted to be the crap out of me at every opportunity. Either that or just spray piss all over me whenever it got the chance to so, but it didn't it didn't it didn't stop me. It it actually yeah. I was I was still in love with it. I still thought it was great. Um, and at week five, six, seven, eight, it was I was still in love with it, but I realised that I'd committed to the snake and it was my pet and it wasn't a disposable thing. But equally I did kind of want a snake that wasn't gonna piss all over me every time I held it
1: <laughs>
2: or try, or try and savage me. You know, at ten years old, those are preferences that I think you're entitled to. So, mm-hmm. uh, at which point, uh, snake number two, which was a gamble because I stayed with the same genus, uh, I got a, oh. I got Nerodia I got Nerodia Rhombifa, so I got a diamondback mm-hmm. water snake. So, and actually, she was as good as gold. She was as tame as they came, uh, and one of the loves of my life. Um, and then I think it was about eleven. I got my third snake, which was a grey rat snake. Or a central rat snake, as the idiots have reclassified it now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and and um, that again, she was just a joy, an absolute joy. So, the 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 love affair was there from the beginning, um, and loads of research and reading, um, and just just generally being the snake nerd that we all were when we were kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: so, very very yeah. very cool. So yeah. when does the shop get involved? So, so you're you're well known for snakes and adders in Great Britain. Um, where which city is it in again? Just so the audience knows.
2: So we're ba- we're based in the north of England, Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Sheffield. Yeah. Gotcha. So, uh, we're pretty much slap bang. If you if you put a pin in the center of the, the UK, that's where that's where we are. Gotcha. So, um, it, including Scotland, obviously, but yeah, right in, the, right bang in the middle. We're great, actually, for people coming and going because they come from all directions and we're the stopping point or the hub a lot of the times for when people are ferrying animals around and things, so it's quite useful. But yeah, it, the shop, um, I had continued keeping and built up a private collection and I kept all sorts, really diverse collection um, from... Mexican Blacks, Sinaloa Milk Snakes, Reticulated Pythons, Northern Pine Snakes, Matlock's Pythons, Colombian Tegus, down to Fire-bellied Toads, Horned Frogs, Spotted Pythons. At this point, I hadn't really picked a a a specialism within our specialism, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I was game for everything and it didn't matter what it was. If it was a herptile, I loved it and I wanted it. And and so at its peak, probably my private collection was maybe 70 to 90 animals. It's hard to pin down exactly how many. Um, And then I was working as weekend staff at Snakes and Adders. Snakes and Adders existed before I owned it. It was... Mm -hmm. It was opened in the year 2000 by a guy called Matthew Todd, who after two years of running it, decided he wanted to emigrate to Thailand. And having worked there weekends, I was offered it for sale. And I turned to my mum and dad. I'm in the middle of doing a product design degree at university. I'm in my second year and I got offered the shop and that was it. The degree went out the window. So Yeah, I don't hold any sort of academic qualifications in this. It's all self-taught. And I took the shop on, green as grass, didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Loads of mistakes because I was a hobbyist, not a businessman. You know, and (laughs) and (laughs) the the difference between me and probably some of your other guests is they they are still pure hobbyists, which I am slightly envious of. But I'm... A business that works with reptiles, so it's it's, yes. it's a different mindset and way of running things. So, um, and and the rest is history. Two thousand and three, I bought snakes and adders, and we're still going strong now. And we moved from Leeds, which is north of Sheffield, by about thirty-five miles. And we we moved uh, back to Sheffield when my son was born, so that I didn't miss out on him growing up with the commuting because. Even though it's only thirty-five miles, it was an hour there, an hour back every day, and it just robs time, you know. So. Yeah, gotcha.
1: Well, and I think it's awesome because you know this is kind of the dream of every reptile keeper, if you will, creating a shop, moving towards that kind of influence to share your passion. Um, you know, I'm good friends with uh, Jeff and Brian that own Chicago Reptiles, and as a kid, I used to go there every weekend, any chance I had, and that kind of flourished. hobby for me and both of those guys they were hobbyists and they turned it towards a business and have done so for many many years Um, but as you noted i mean they didn't have any sort of academic background either both of those gentlemen were they were both marines and i think it's very interesting in, in terms of that and because over the years i've seen many pet stores open up but usually they don't last um, a lot of it is due to just the driving force. Um, people lose their passion. And that's something that, you know, even in discussions you, between private messaging and stuff like that on Facebook, I mean, Jazz. I mean, you've really brought this hobby into a different direction, like Zach was mentioning, the YouTube videos. And um, we'll definitely talk about the website that was, you know, once for a publication too. Um, but you've shared your your love for the animals, and I think it really shows, especially when you watch social media posts, um, not only in terms of that, but the responsible pet keeper piece of paper that you make your um, purchaser sign. I think that's a, a great means because you're showcasing that it's not a disposable animal, um, that it means much more, like you mentioned, even in terms of keeping water snakes and things
2: like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you you touched on something, which is it. It the, for the business owners, it does rob you of your hobby. It robs you of, and it can dry up your passion into a tiny little dust husk. You know, <laughs> and you have to you have to fight against it because what what I've found has been a, really a breath of fresh air is I finally learned to transfer my passion to the kids that come in the shop. So the, the same, that same single-minded, full steam ahead, research everything, complete obsession with reptiles, we try and instill in the kids. So the, the kids are no good if their only understanding of owning a pet is to get it out and play with it. You've got to clean out its crap. You have got to, disinfect the tank you have got to do everything else so we really go to town with that and then we get like today we had a young lady who had bought a house snake about six weeks ago and she lives in redditch birmingham so that's 80 miles away and her mum's come back to get another snake and and she's brought her diary that we give them and and mm-hmm. it's proud as punch proud as punch that she's brought it in and she shows it me and obviously you make a big fuss because you want to instill in them that positivity of you're doing great. This is awesome. And how's your snake? Is it calming down? And, you know, I, I want to share in that, and and I enjoy that part much more now. You know, as a res, as a result of trying to get that transference to the kids and the keepers, and th- that's kind of the motivation for the YouTube channel as well. You know, you've learned all this stuff. Just get it out there and get it shared. You know, people can be yeah. miserly with knowledge sometimes, so. It's nice to share.
0: Yeah, and and it's invaluable to share as well. It, but the major issue is sharing the right information yeah. and information that is based in evidence and fact. And and that's where you run into problems. And that's where the videos that you're putting out are, in my opinion, as a teacher, professor, whatever the hell you want to call me, uh, invaluable. Because one thing, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. Um, And when everybody, anybody says to me, do research, I think books. That's like my default. That's, you know, research equals books. But I'm teaching young people. I sound like I'm 900 years old right now, but that's okay. And I can flat out tell you when I tell my classes, which are made up of 19, 18, 20 year olds, even the graduate students go do research for their herp assignment in particular. I have to explain to them like primary literature, They're one of the initial responses, okay, well, I'm going to go on to Google. I'm going to do a search. And the way Google's set up is it, it links into YouTube, and then whatever video gets the most hits is what's going to pop up, and that's thought to be part of this research process. And I can flat out tell you that's not research. So if we have the good to combat the bad in that in that platform and it's out there, that's invaluable. So – uh well, I, yes I, I appreciate I that, that very much. I appreciate. Yeah, no, that. we need that um, uh, very very badly, and then to take it one step further and make people do a you know data log basically once they own their their pet that it doesn't get better than that as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, Thank so you. when did that start? When did you start doing the 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 did, it, did, did you have some kind of observation that drove you to, okay, we're going to initiate this contract and this is what we're going to start doing? Or or what was its genesis initially?
2: The genesis originally took place in Leeds. I was working with a guy called Matt Pedder, who um, he, he, he was there as the manager. And we were discussing a way that we could get the kids to commit to the responsibility. Equally, if we knew who the breeders were, because predominantly I am an agent for UK producers or European producers of animals, mm-hmm. that we could then give them some a certificate that would then also act as provenance for where the animal originally came from. So you knew that you weren't crossing bloodlines. The idea got shelved initially when we moved back to Sheffield. I think there was a need to simplify the shop and over the past eight months there's been the reintroduction with uh, Pixie and Becky who are the new girls that work with me and we've really gone to town and drilled down and tried to distill this idea of the kids being our primary focus and trying to make sure that whether you're 10, 11, 12 years old you can be a responsible keeper, you can keep this diary and you are wholeheartedly taking on the responsibility of your new animal and that's the drive. And the parents seem to be 110% behind it. And it raises an eyebrow when they're not, because, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe you aren't the people that we need to be selling snakes to. So, Well, and I
1: I think that's really interesting too, just because I've had open conversations with a mutual friend, um, Rob Stone. And I mean, we've gone down tangents in terms of moral and ethical responsibility in terms of not only reproducing animals in captivity, but also the sales prospect. Um, Too often people get dissuaded by the sale of the um, or potential purchasing of animals. I mean, we've seen it in ball pythons, you know, everywhere. And we've seen a number of collections come up for sale over the years, too, because people lose that interest or passion um, for the animals and for some of that they may have never even done the natural history research or half, half of them probably don't even know
2: ball pythons come from africa yes <laughs> that, that would not surprise me in the least <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah oh my god yeah <laughs> it's 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 um the the research process we also give the kids homework so we've not mentioned that yet we have a A research sheet which goes with the kids upon initial inquiry so we will never sell on the same day that they come into the shop so that seems like an alien concept so other shop owners be like what what you want about no if you come in and you're just doing your we've come to find out about leopard geckos right okay you've come to find out so here's a research sheet we've done a a 30-minute guide video on YouTube we want you to do your own research Little Billy, Little Mandy, whatever their names are. We need to know where it's from. What temperature does it like to be at the warm side? What does it cool down to? Does it need a damp hide? Well, what kind of substrate should we keep it on? And they bring back their quiz, as it were, that they have to find the answers for. And it's that is part of involving the kids in the process. So at which point, anything they can't find, we'll fill in the blanks. And it isn't that we don't want to sell it to them, but we don't want to make it overly easy. This is not a t-shirt that's hanging on a hanger. You're buying something that's going to live for 25 years. Take this shit seriously. And you, mm-hmm. you can't you can't half-arse it. It, do, it doesn't work. And, and that's the same with the kids as it is with the parents. And again, if the parents do not see the value in their child researching a pet before purchase, then again, maybe... Reptiles, my reptiles are not the reptiles for you. Go somewhere else. No. Well, and and that
1: that's a really clear point too, because, you know, even myself from visiting pet stores and going to, it's interesting because for myself, you know, Chicago Reptiles was a huge influence in my background. Um, it's the reason why I pursued a master's and then later a PhD even. Um was because of the love of the animals and the research and aspect. And I, I think you're taking it another step further even, Jazz, in terms of influencing or at least providing the onset for scientific thought by providing a journal for observation, collection of data, understanding of the animal. And I think that's valuable because I don't see many pet stores that even influence or do something of that. And that's part of why I really wanted to get you on here because obviously with the podcast being what it is, you are going to have people that are going to be interested in different species and animals. And that's why we've tried to really narrow down and pick specific people to talk in this Avenue, because this is a great valuable tool also for early entry um, research, if you will. Um, And, Myself, I used to travel the entire United States and Canada, and I I would stop in at pet stores. I I just loved it. I met a lot of great people over the time that I did that, you know, even going to Twin Cities Reptiles and seeing that store in in Minneapolis. I mean, there's just, but you're taking it to a whole nother level that I think is amazing. Um, Because not only are you providing that valuable insight, but you're nurturing that scientific thought for future generations.
2: I I, I I I honestly it, 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 I, I'm really sort of touched that you feel that way. It's nice to be validated, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. a lot of people look at us going like we're mad. Um <laughs> no. particularly, particularly within the trade, because we do take it seriously and maybe like some people would think we take it too far. But as far as scientific thought goes, to me it's just common sense. I'm not science based. I have no no foundation in science i just like the animals and i see value in being able to record things and being able to see patterns in those recordings the 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 frequency of shed skins the monthly weigh-ins that we make them do so that they can chart growth and these sorts of things where the first three questions that a vet will ask is when did it last feed when did it last shed and how's its weight okay, well, here's my record sheet. And, and everything's done for them. And, and, and there you go. Not all vets are created equal. We can pretend they are, but they're not. Mm-hmm. And not, they're not all qualified to judge reptiles accurately. So we will, at which point, provide them with the most accurate record possible to streamline that process to make sure it gets the best care if there's an issue. I hope because we're making good keepers, we limit that as much as possible and obviously we're the first port of call if there's a concern invariably it's human error so we can put most things right through a husbandry prison without involving a veterinarian anyway you know stop playing with it every day why is it sat on top of the <laughs> line? You know, you know, don't keep your white lip python in a busy room where everyone's running backwards and forwards that's you know common sense things that people just seem to skip past you know so that's what we try and do, just get them to record things. I see value in the recordings. Well, excellent. So to kind of
0: move towards the, the primary subject of our podcast here, we ask every guest this, um, and so here we're asking it of you. What about colubrids makes you love them? Like Compared to other snakes, colubrids definitely have their own kind of angle if you will and you've certainly kept not only colubrids but colubroids so what is it about a colubrid i mean your 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 initiation into herpetoculture were colubrids so just tell us a little bit about what you like about them compared to other snakes and herbs in general
2: they're better than everything else
0: there you go (laughs) turn on
2: the podcast now we're done right anyway so expand uh, on that
0: wonderful statement
2: (laughs) so uh, they're the room 101 they're they're the melting pot you can have a bit of everything if you want color you've got it you want you want some specialism with the way that their nose is built the way that their eyes are constructed the way that they live their life you are Literally, you can experience a bit of everything within the calubrid realm. And whereas the other things are more specialized, the calubrids offer such a depth of choice that you can just, I mean, Matt's got specialisms within the calubrid specialism. You've got specialisms within the calubrid. The calubrids yep. is such a wide ranging thing, it ought to be its own hobby. It's such a big group to deal with. Um and 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 that's I, I just I think it's ace that the group is so diversified, there's so many different things that you can keep. And honestly, I just find them more interesting than everything else. And, and me and my friend Francis over here in the UK, we sort of joke that we like the boring brown snakes because the the weirder, weirder, odder stuff it doesn't need to be pretty and it doesn't need to be something else. It's oddball and left field, and that's why we like it. So I went to a show and acquired a bunch of stuff the other day, and I'm talking some really cool shit like uh yellowtail crebos, uh yeah. Amazonian yeah. puffing snakes Uh, I got a, a divergence uh a d- dendrophila oh. so I, mm-hmm. so I got a load of wicked stuff the most exciting thing and I turned around to pixie and Becky and said, the best thing I bought today was a european four-lined rat snake it honestly. Yeah. So you've got all, all the rest of this, this this, pretty, beautiful, everybody wants it, it's so oddball, just a quattro lineata, quite happy with that. Because in 31 years, I've never kept one. I've kept mangroves, uh, I've kept freebanks, I've kept everything. So these were my first European four lines. So for me, it's, it's as exciting seeing a little black and white blotched, boring rat snake as other people mm-hmm. who have been, faint, they, like some of my customers, my regulars, I've shown them the divergence and they're pretty much fainting where they stand and collapsing on yeah. the floor yeah. at the beauty of this mm-hmm. thing. And I'm like, yeah, but I got four lines, so it's okay. Do you know what I, mean? <laughs> they, just, so so, um, yeah, I just I'm all about being able, I, I, because I can't keep stuff <laughs> and all my stock is transient by nature because I'm shocked, I photo record everything that I keep. So mm-hmm. when I get some, I get something that I've never kept before, this excites me because I can now make photographic recordings of what I've kept. So my database is about forty thousand photos at the moment. Holy mothers! Yeah. So multiple <laughs> shots of the same snake. Sometimes I haven't had forty thousand mm-hmm. snakes, but you know the, the database is running at about forty k at the minute. So.
0: Man. So so among the Colubrids, do you have, and I know this is a really difficult question, so I'm sorry, but do you have <laughs> like, like a top three or four uh, that you're just kind of like, yeah, you know, I've, I've I've tons of taxa have gone through the door of the shop, but these yeah. are the taxa. If I were to shut it down now, be independently wealthy, not need the shop anymore. These are the ones I'm keeping. Do, do you have a, a list there?
2: Or is that just like yeah. yeah no I can't answer that question lofman shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so no no I, I can answer it and and the simple okay, thing cool. is I like, I'd, I'd go back to being eleven or twelve, and mm-hmm. I would keep I would keep my grey rat snake McCartney who lived for about like, eighteen years and she uh, was the love of my life and I'd have my diamondback water snake. Again. There, there's really? an innocence in yeah there's an innocence in it. So at, at which point that you can aspire to be as as left field or as odd or whatever else i loved those snakes i loved them so i i I would i would have them again in a heartbeat i would clone them and recreate them time and time again because they were the loves of my life the only snake that i would add that i found thoroughly interesting it booked all of the ideas about the notes that i read about them and I was really excited to get was back in the day we got Japanese four lined rat snakes. So we oh don't even uh,
1: get me on that one. I've been looking for those things for like
2: 10 years now. (laughs) (laughs) So so we, we, we had the chance to buy a group of Russian captive bred uh, baby quadriveri garters and they Mm -hmm. were awesome. They've got this weird teardrop shaped eye. They're supposed to be frog specialists the frog bits bollocks that from babies, they will take defrosted pinkies without issue. They grow rapidly and they're as tame as Japanese rat snakes are. So all of the notes that I've read must be pertaining to the wild caught stock because the captive bred animals mm-hmm. present no actual um, difference to clinical fora. I was just kept them exactly the same and they, they, they were great. And the way that they grew and probably one of my regrets is not re- holding on to those. Not that anybody over here would particularly give a shit about them. I like, <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm. so I, you know, like it, back, back, it was all wasted on them. This stuff was coming in in 2006, seven. And then Royals really hit in the UK. The new morphs of corn started appearing and that was all she wrote for the diversity of what we used to be able to get. Stuff just flat out disappeared. It wasn't being bred. It wasn't available. And then the doldrums set in. And thankfully now we're coming out the other side of it. And one species I would jump on, jump on, like Matt's alluded to with 10 years of waiting, would be jabbed mm-hmm. for again if I could get them. Absolutely.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, I don't even want the melanistic. I just want the normals.
2: they're very cool very cool
1: you know it's even interesting talking about the four line um, Suramedes is I looked for those for years and then Dick Bartlett who has written a number of field guides in the United States for Florida everything out of the blue he sent me a message and said I have a group of them would you be interested and I ended up getting a pair of them and they were already adults, never been bred, but they had cancer. I ended up taking uh. them to a vet and it was like, oh, just downhill. Um, and you don't see them very often still in the hobby. And it's jazz, as you referenced, it's a brown snake. And mm-hmm. people don't understand the significance of them. Um, you know, even leopard rat snakes you don't see leopard mm-hmm. rats even available very frequently anymore and they're a beautiful animal
2: we've got a striped one if you want it
1: yeah
0: sitchul <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is hard to find over here uh, that's one yeah. that i was contemplating adding to my group back when i was kind of heavy into asians and mm-hmm. i you know you'd get one or two that pop up on fauna or morph market um but it also seemed yeah. like as soon as they popped up, they were immediately snatched.
2: So Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because there's going to be changes between what's available to, to you guys and what's available to me. and, it, and it's the, We've had a reasonable amount of the European tax coming through, so we, there's been a lot more natrix be, being produced, which is the grass snakes, mm-hmm. viperine, and dice snakes. Um, and they're becoming more uh, heavily available. People are starting to really take... Um, to harp the grass snake derivatives. We, we've we got natrix, natrix here. But the, over in, in Europe, there's Helveltica, there's Schweizeri, these other subspecies that they really go for. And they're really getting into those. Um, I produced some viperine snakes earlier this year. Uh, they were really cool, really nice little snakes. But they're tiny. They're so small when they're born. Um, and then uh, it it's weird, like you guys... From my understanding, we've got San Francisco garters in the shop, but federally you're not allowed to keep. Is that my no. understanding? So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. So I bought a group of twenty five San Francisco garters. <laughs> Sorry, boys.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's a gut punch to me. But I understand. Yeah. I mean, it's a federally listed species in here. Yeah. We when they get to that level of imperilment, I get it because you it is yeah. hard to, to prove that they came from. Cats are born mm-hmm. stock, and it's not somebody in California yeah. plucking them out off the hillsides there. So,
2: yeah, I mean, we, 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 I think it was all, I can't remember how many seed animals it was. About 24 seed animals went to Europe in about, I think it mm-hmm. was about 88 eight or something. And all of our stuff is all derived from, from those originals. But that carries with it, same as Matt mentioned earlier with cancers. You you Mm -hmm. inbreed to that level that regularly, you're going to get your tumors and defects and stuff. So we have to be dead careful about who we buy from. Make sure that they are as unrelated as we can get them. That they've got sourced them from different regions, you know. And it's so it's it's hard. But and Sam Franz, we are worried about. We we're cautious with, shall we say. So I got approached by a guy called Alan Francis who runs gartersnake.co.uk, and he's a really well-respected Garter guy. And uh, I bought them red-sideds and some flame Easterns that he's working on. And he's got his own, uh, or or he's working on, they carry a gene for something called Bengal, which is like um, a super reduced pattern and bright orange with black flecks down it. And so they're working on that sort of stuff over here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some cool stuff going on. And I, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I find it really interesting. I, I could probably chat for hours with you about, is that available to you? Is this available to us? You know, <laughs> and, and I, I don't really talk to a lot of guys over the water. So it's it's knowing the way that the hobby works over there and the way that it's set up over here. And, you know, it, I think it works slightly differently. You've got a lot more of the regularity with the shows. You've got the breeders. Mm-hmm people get direct shipments from the breeders, whereas we basically struggle with one crappy breeders meeting, maybe now three times a year, but back in the day, it was once or twice a year. Um, and the shops, the network of shops in the UK is really diverse and and there's lots and lots of them. whereas it seems to be more breeder driven, like private independent breeders. Uh, You know, I can look flick back through old copies of Reptiles magazine, whether it's your Peter Carl, your Peter Sharp, uh, all these other guys, and they all had their own individual TNT reptiles. What was it? Pro Exotics. I remember all these names. I don't know what (laughs) they mean, who they are or what they did. (laughs) I just just know that they were individual, independent companies that would then ship out, whereas that wasn't our mechanism for animals was visiting your local reptile center there were breeders, but it was all low key. It wasn't to the level of professionalism that was portrayed in reptiles magazine. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Do you want to speak to that point, Matt?
1: No, I'm, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Um, You know, over the years, you see a lot of people come and go, Um, Mm -hmm. especially independent breeders, you know, talking about you know the trade itself i think you're moving in a different direction here in the united states too as well i think a lot of people um well as you mentioned the ball python craze it, it brought a lot of people into the hobby um it also left some people with very sour feelings um too as well based upon some of that But what I think we're seeing, Uh, but what I I think you're really starting to see here, um, just from myself, being an individual, you know, I do run a a business on the side, per se, if you will, Sarfometra. And, you know, I'll continue keeping and breeding snakes just because I love them. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. talking about nostalgia, even Zach, when we were coming up with the logo, was like, you sure you don't want cocksacked? in terms of being represented. Um, you know, pro-exotics, for instance, as you mentioned, I mean, they were nostalgic for the porphyracia with the cocci. And it's funny when you start to talk about nostalgia, because I'm very good friends with Robin Markland, who was one of the operating managers for pro-exotics, and he doesn't keep any reptiles at this point in time. But in conversation, he said if he was to keep reptiles, but his travel schedule is so hectic right now, but he would get cocci. He would mm-hmm. want cox again. Um, but trade and shows and things like that here in the United States, you know, people that know me and talk to me, they always ask, well, why doesn't Matt go to the shows? Why don't I vend at the shows? Things like that. And to be very frank, it's because um, reptile shows put a sour taste in my mouth because mm-hmm. it's it's not about the animal. I enjoy, for instance, jazz. like you were mentioning, talking the natural history, talking to people about the animals, talking about those specific interests where sometimes mm-hmm. if someone hasn't sold something on their table, at the end of the day, it's like a clear, it's a fire sale. Everything's got to yeah. go right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting, and I, I think from my perspective, having been in this since i was a kid you know i have old price lists from distributors like glades herp back yep. in the early 90s um and from myself being in this so long i mean that was a driving aspect almost to like get in the mail a, a green price list and on there hmm. you'd have animals from madagascar africa um europe and it was just like like this is before the Internet, but which I, I think a lot of new keepers don't understand is how far we've come. But also we've taken many steps backwards. And I say that purely because everyone wants and, and this is just it, from my perspective, the American perspective is we're treating the hobby as a shopping cart, like going to the grocery store. Well, what's on sale? I need, I'll buy this and buy that. You have those persona and those are the people that I reject sales. I I won't sell the animals. I won't even go Mm -hmm. that route. Um, I'd rather someone who has done their research, spoken to me, that's the person that I want to pursue and do business with. And it's because they've done their research and they know about that, um, But going back to the early 90s, it was very similar here in the U.S. I mean, most of the things were pet stores. Not many people were Mm -hmm. able to buy from individual breeders, things like that. It was really the revolution of trade shows here in the United States that really kind of brought out that independent breeder, Mm -hmm. from my perspective. Um, In some ways, it's good. Some ways, it's bad, Um, just because from my standpoint, the moral ethics of even selling animals um you know from buying from different routes you you will have different experiences um some good some bad
2: Ethic, ethically you can't keep your nose totally clean so for example mm-hmm. i mean i'd sooner be completely honest about it full disclosure such as at the shows at the end of the show if if this fire sale starts as a business owner i will buy those animals because I'm a profit-making business. Do I ethically mm-hmm. think it's right? Well, no. But I'm dealt the cards that I've got to play with, and that's that's what I've got to do. Um, we're selling animals, sentient beings, to other people, and you can assume as much responsibility or as little responsibility as your ethical compass will allow. But you've got to... like take some responsibility but then you want the keeper to take responsibility as well and be equally invested and at a show i'm just not convinced that that's the case i think that invariably they've got like idiots with a shit ton of reticulated python sat on the table and you're like dude like you know you you could literally like it's five thousand people here you could pick maybe a hundred people capable of keeping that for the entirety of its life cycle. And and, and you're just gonna, you're gonna sell them all. And if they're not gone, like you said, suddenly this Albino, Golden Child, Super Turbo, whatever shit it is, is a tenner. It's like five quid. Yeah, take it, I don't want it. I don't wanna go home with it. It just removes yeah. all responsibility and it's a ridiculous way to be. Um, but I would be lying and I don't lie. I would be lying if I said that there aren't benefits as a shop owner. To go into the shows <laughs> because you can you, you benefit from it and 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 I don't want to be um, what's the word I can't even think of the word I don't I don't want to be um, oh Christ this is where much hypocrite is. hypocrite there you go thank you there you go yeah the there you go I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to be a, I'd sooner own it and be straight about it than. Than pretend it doesn't happen, and there's a fair bit of that goes on as well. The people who purport to be whiter than white, and, I'm okay, and you know I, I don't do anything wrong. And actually, you know none of us are perfect. We do the best we can. We're human. We err. Uh, we just do what we can. That's all we can do. But
0: but but you as a, a dealer though, you do have an ethical compass, even if you're purchasing those animals at the end of the show. Um, yeah, they they, they won't leave without. Yeah. So an example of this conversation that drives me crazy is right now one of my students uh, is doing a really cool project that came about as a direct result of me kind of lurking in, uh, on Facebook groups and listening to people. And we're, we're testing this idea that if you incubate colubrid eggs at a cooler temperature, you get a bigger, batter baby because it, in theory, stays in the egg longer and then, you know. Okay, You produce a bigger, better organism. Um, Whereas if you cook them faster at a higher incubation temperature, they come out the other end, you know, they're in the egg a shorter period of time and they're going to be smaller. Well, that's a beautiful question that I can test very easily here at the university with the tools that I have available and the animals that we have here. And so we put together the design of the experiment and part of this design includes, um, common species. So we're looking at like California king snakes and just pitch office. like nothing out of the ordinary, just pitch office. I don't need you know, double head super stripe, hypo, blah, blah, blahs. I just need a San Diego gopher snake pair. And two points to this conversation about the ethics of keeping. I feel that if you are a dealer of snakes and this is how you make your income, that you should be able to sex a damn snake. <laughs> I've gone online, and I found pairs of Cali kings and gopher snakes, and worked out, you know, explain what it is. Uh, and I've I've now gotten California king snakes, and from two, they were they were rename, they will remain nameless, groups of people. And in both situations, two different times, I was supposed to get two point two, and I got 4.0. Uh, I am now the proud owner of eight male gopher snakes and eight male California King snakes. And in both instances, I, I reached out and was like, did you sex these things? And with the Cali Kings, what's happening is their, um, their uh, set glands their penal glands are are getting impacted. And so when you go to put the probe in there, it goes two or three subcaudals deep and you're yeah. done. If you have been working with colubrids for the past decade and a half of your freaking existence, You should know that a little bit of palpation there with that swollen gland is going to result in that pressure being released and you can probe the snake. So, you know, there's a difference in the dealers is what I'm trying to say, because I've got other people that I'm working with who uh, are going to be getting the business of the university because, you know, one of them made a mistake. Realized they made the mistake as the snakes were in the air coming to me and said, hey, I, I, I screwed up. That's on me. Uh, they basically bagged the wrong animals, what ended up happening because they had so many animals. I'm going to be shipping out the female here later. So like, there's not all dealers are created equal. And then the other thing is that when you choose the animals that you're going to sell, you absolutely nailed it with uh, the retics. Yes, there are super dwarf retics. There are smaller retics. You know, we're not going to go down that path. But a great example is I'm at one of the, because I'm still on the hunt for these female California kingsnakes. Never thought that it was going to be like searching for some rare animal finding a female of the species, but I'm at the show and I'm looking at the tables and anymore. When I go to reptile shows, I just want to get in and get out because I feel like I'm going to get into a freaking fist fight before I walk out of the door. And on the table, there's, um, Abacura mud snakes. Why, why are you selling a mud snake? Are you gonna go out and get the thing freaking fumas and sirens for the rest of its life? Like, and what I don't think people understand is when you're just trying to make a buck, this is the reason these regulations come down the way they do. Because mm-hmm. you're just grabbing anything with scales outside and throwing it in a bag, and you're not thinking long term. That is just literally to make it make a dollar. And I'm in the conservation in like. I am a conservation biologist by trade. That's what I do. I have the conversation with the people that make the regulations. And when you're bagging up a mud snake, that's what they see. And those herpetologists that are on those boards are like, you know, they would just grab anything. And, and you then have people that do super locality-esque projects in herpeticulture, And they're only working with like snakes like Alterna or, or something like that. And when those animals are brought into human care, they're, they're, they're treated like gold. The conservation agency is not going to care about that if they know that there's for every one of those there's ten people out filling bags full of mud snakes, which is just yep. ridiculous. Uh, yep. So, um, I, even though you're, you're you're buying the snakes at the end of the day, I think the you're also making people fill out
1: forms. And, you know, going the extra mile.
0: Yeah, well, and Chaz,
1: I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are certain animals that you won't even sell in the shop. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, so yeah, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff that we've added. So all of your your big hitter giants, they're, they're done now. Um, I mean, I know this is Colubrid Radio, but just to segue for a second. So one of the major problems in the UK is obviously we're insular and we have a finite population. So when we get guys that are producing four, five, and six litres of mainland retic-derived um, eggs and then... Actively seeking to import from the USA, from the West Coast, uh, more retics, and you think, what are you doing, and why are you doing? It? You know, like it doesn't make any sense. And I love retics. Retics are probably my favorite Python, and everyone thinks I'm anti-retic. I am anything but. I have such an abundance of respect for the species that not every nobed who wants to keep a retic. <laughs> Should keep a tick. That's just the way I am, and I say it as it is. They, they, they're too prolific. They produce far too many eggs. They get too frigging big, and they can be really triggered and unpredictable. And for every tame one, there's one that's gone to bite somebody, and then it's destined to be passed from pillar to post to a hundred different keepers, who think that they are Superman and can change this tick's temperament because it's had a bunch of shit owners in the past and i would sooner just completely cut that away from my species list so burmese uh african rocks retics nile monitors uh we'd stop selling savannah monitors or bosque monitors now uh so slider turtles green iguanas they're all mixed. they can't be sold not from me anyway and it's there just trying to be an to, to be safe. go ahead just trying to be safe
0: well, there has to be an element of self-policing. If, if you show that you're willing to deregulate and be sensible about the what your approach to this, it, it it will get the hobby, be it in Great Britain or North America, into a better position with the people that are making the laws. Mm-hmm. That's just the right. way it is. Unpopular opinion, you... but it's true. <laughs> so there's that.
2: I, yeah, the, the people that organise the hobby to be able to self police, they think it's an extra extraordinary odd decision, and it's like, but this is my business. I, you know, I have a problem with these animals, and therefore I'm not going to sell them anymore. From 2014 through to 2019, we didn't sell normal bearded dragons. There was a population issue. So at which point they're being overbred and overproduced and there was a project launched in the UK called Incubate 2, which was where you would incubate two eggs and throw away the rest. And the idea was that we were going to try and arrest the amount of bearded dragons being produced. When you've got a bearded dragon that, say, needs, if we're doing this properly with halogens, thermostats, UV, T5s, all the rest of it, and we're, say, a $400, $500 setup to do this properly and your bearded dragon costs 20 bucks, they're not gonna pay it. And, mm-hmm. and 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 then they're gonna say, well, it's a $20 animal. Why Why am I paying 500 bucks for its kit? And this is one of the most popular lizards going. So we decided just as a shop, ethically, we were gonna stop and that was it. We stopped selling probably the biggest profit-making lizard that the shop had because because it was wrong, and again, the the leaders of the UK hobby derided us as insane. But it's the way the hobby was going, and if an animal is degraded in value that much that it's throwaway value, then it's destined to have a shit life. I'd sooner just not be part of that. And it wasn't until twenty. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish. Yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't until 2019 and things had calmed down that we decided to reintroduce the sale of bearded dragons, but only the colour phase animals. We still won't sell normals even now. So they have an arbitrary figure of value that means that they're insulated. And therefore, if you're blowing 200 bucks on a beardie, you're going to pay for the kit. Whereas if it's 20 bucks, you won't. Or at least that's the theory I'm working on when dealing with the general public who aren't always the most... You know, clued up guys in the world. So to to kind of
1: share a point on that and even represent it into a colubrid sense, um, you know, a lot of people over the years have asked, "How did the price of X Y Z colubrid go from twenty dollars to over a dollars
2: Mexican and, black king, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what we've They're crazy, crazy value over, but, over
1: I mean. Oh yeah. But, in, and there's a, a whole nother secular point off of this is just, you nailed it. It's once an animal reaches a certain price point, that animal no longer becomes a disposable animal. It becomes something that someone's going to actually put care into, into the proper setup. Um, you know, even I've had this conversation with a number of um, very well-respected individual keepers, breeders, too, but it blows my mind that people would spend thousands of dollars on an animal and then cheap out on a thermostat. Yep. Thinking about (laughs) fires, safety. Um, so I see it both ways and it's very interesting to me because of just talking about this hobby, talking about the animals. Um, it, it always blows my mind in terms of the ways that things go. Um, But even, you know, I I breed corn snakes, and I do that for a couple of different reasons. One, to kind of introduce the idea of genetics to Maggie. And the other thing is I I breed cape files, So I I need a, a source of prey item for the capes, too. But I've had over the years a number of kids that I've given corn snakes to as a first animal. But I say, this is everything you need to buy the cage, yeah. the lighting, you, you know, whatever. And what's blown me away is every one of those kids that have done their research and done everything, they have those animals years later. And I see pictures, they send me pictures. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's no longer a animal that is basically disposable. Um, you know, even talking about big animals and things like that, ethically, you know, from a sales perspective, you're doing the right thing because having worked in pet stores, um, those animals come back to you. Um, especially selling them as a baby, a retic, you'll have an 18 foot retic dropped off at your door. Um, I've seen some really bad stories, um, that I've lived through and have actually witnessed. We've, You know, having worked in a pet store before, you'd have a bag dropped off with a, you know, eight-foot Colombian red-tailed boa. And you'd have someone come in the shop and be like, hey, do you guys have any big, uh, you know, snakes, blah, blah, And that snake that just got dropped off was then sold to that guy just purely because that guy wanted a big snake. And that's not the right way to pursue this hobby um, because, you know, as Zach even mentioned, those are the laws that then come back and restrict us, um, especially in, in Europe. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but even in some areas, you can't keep California kingsnakes anymore because they were introduced to the Canary Islands or something yeah, of that sort. And,
2: yeah. So the, there's there's a bunch of stuff going through. They're all about trying to trying to ban the Getula kings. And and oddly enough, one of the taxonomic reviews has now elevated the Cali king to its own species, so uh, Lampelitus californica. So I don't see that as coincidental. I see that as <laughs> you know, you know when coincidences are just too convenient. Like it's one of those where there's suddenly this this huge issue, and now suddenly it's its own species, but. They escaped in the Canary Islands, there's a population of albinos, there's no natural predators for them. The birds aren't used to the predation of snakes and therefore they're running amok on the island. And that means that in Spain they're on about banning them. If it goes to Brussels and it gets passed as a law in Brussels, that then applies to the whole of Europe. And that's, that's our issue. So it's a Spanish problem that will affect the whole of Europe if it comes to pass. So and then it's how long those European rules apply to us, even though we've left Europe. There's some sort of hangover of if it was passed and if it became became law within a certain period of time. There was this rumor that all of the Cali kings were going to be uh, outlawed in the UK. But to be honest, it's hogwash anyway. They they for the European species. So, citula, um What else have you got? That natrix tessellata, natrix mora, all of this sort of stuff. We're supposed to have sort of Aesculapian snakes, longissima, those things. We're supposed to have like sort of grandfather papers where we know the provenance of the animal. And that's been in place for 15 years. And I'm a shop that sells this kind of stuff day in, day out, and we'll source it. No one's ever asked me a damn question since the law came in. So at which point, if you think that government, which is. All out trying to deal with COVID, Brexit and everything else is going to be asked whether you keep a Californian snake or not the answer is they're not so it's, it, it's just it's pie in the sky, if it happens it happens but I'm really not sure that it would make that much difference over here because there wow. are species that's been sold for years in the UK, they're, there's probably 10,000 of them knocking around over here the, just the sheer logistics alone of trying to manage that population and make sure that everybody logs their animal, it, it's just not gonna happen. It's, it's almost, it's weird. It's almost like scaremongering. It, there's mm-hmm. so much more to concentrate on than whether we've got Cali Kings in the UK, but it's a rumor that does the rounds every now and again. And, you know, yeah. just roll with it. You probably get the same stuff over there. Who's, who's gonna monitor it or change it? You know, you don't want to necessarily go out and break the law. If you've got it in your collection and it's been there 10 years, What harm is it doing? Yeah. So,
1: yeah, you know, and it, you are 100% on that. Um, It's a very interesting subject um, just to take it as par. I mean, if you're a responsible keeper, you know, and you're doing your due diligence, Mm -hmm. no one's going to really care. It's when you see. Well, and a big part has been social media, because you mm-hmm. start to see, and Fish and Wildlife here in the U.S. monitors Facebook, Instagram, yep. and when they see protected species popping up here and there, mm-hmm. you usually hear a, a story that then follows related right. to that, too, as well. Weird, but weird the reality weird, like of
2: hands. it is... <laughs> yeah. Weird we don't we don't we don't have that level of snoopage i'm afraid i don't think that you know the, the thing is they're such an innocuous snake your guys you're pro- predominantly talking about native species know that they're protected over mm-hmm. there crossing state lines trading across state lines what is it is it the Lacey act or something that that that, that, that mm-hmm. stops a lot of stuff shifting around over over your side and we don't have that so and now we're out of Europe, so I just don't see it affecting us. But there is there's talk of other European countries introducing positive lists. I think one or two may have even already put positive lists in place, but I, I'm not sure of the details on those. But it's you, you are you are constricting things. But if we stay, even if they, rat snakes are still available, you still got the one of the richest veins of any family to go down and be able to mine and the species that you can keep it's not it's not like you, you you're suddenly strapped for choice and you haven't got options you got more options <laughs> to do. so you know it, it, at, at which point you know as long as most of the bridge remained untouched with golden you know if they want to ban the giant pythons have at it go go on go and do it you know i don't care it doesn't really bother me i don't sell them anyway anymore and that was through personal choice before these guys even decided they wanted to to ban them. It's I to me it's amazing that so many of them get sold. It's totally irresponsible. And 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 realistically, if my, my primary focus is children and beginner keepers, you know, we have advanced keepers or experienced keepers that come to us and they're buying the things like the Speloites and the dry marcon and these sorts of things, which are their sort of bag. But we're equally with we're, we're we're trying to push the Olafe Lampapeltis, there's a menace, all these different things that are equally applicable to the beginner as a Pantherophis, But all they know, all the websites ever discuss is and And here's a corn snake and that's the be all end all, the sum total of your beginnership. And actually, (laughs) there's a whole load of other shit that we can keep that's just as much fun, just as cool. And if you work with it, Generally, you get out what you put in. And if you put the effort in, mm-hmm. you're going to see the benefits and reap the rewards. So you, you have at it. There's so many things that you can keep.
1: Well, and and kind of as a segue into that, I, I really think this is kind of a key point to kind of bring up your publication even. And what your inspiration was to kind of put out that information in a means to help not only beginner keepers, but experienced keepers as well
2: so the 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 driving force of the youtube channel which then later led to me starting to write the manuscript for the book was the fact that i as a shop owner i absolutely hated the fact that all i got asked about was royal pythons and corn snakes i've got no real beef with either of these species both are valid and both are excellent pet snakes But it was growing up, being able to walk into a store and see four different species of pantherophis, to see bogotophis, to see Neurodia, to see natrix, to see all of these things available for me to buy. And me understand from how long I've been doing it, that actually these animals are no more complex to keep. They're no more complex to raise. They will feed just as well. And as already mentioned, if you put the time in they may not start as tame, but they will become as tame. And therefore, the, the website was an opportunity to be able to try and arbitrarily score through temperament, territoriality, adult size, feeding regimen, and how readily they feed animals. And I think we covered 80 species, and and that, it, that includes about... Five booids, but may, everything else is colubrids or colubroids. Um, and it, it's it was it was a really enjoyable task. You know, I'm thankful to you, Matt, and to a bunch of other people who've read it. And uh, it it was just an opportunity to say, "Gray Band king snakes, guys, why are we not keeping them as beginners? Why are they pre- the preserve of us sort of colubrid nerds? These 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 kids, as long as they're feeding and they've had the right start." or they've been brumated and then they've been brought out so that they start feeding properly and we're not trying to force them to stay hot and keep feeding. Actually, these snakes are just as good as anything else. A bear's rat snake. It's been years since we've seen them over here. I managed to get myself a hypo bird's rat snake the other week. I was made up. I was absolutely elated. <laughs> and and it's a hypo bear's rat snake. Back in the day, I'd have paid £20 for that, and it was it was nothing. But now it's... An abject rarity. We're selling it for £300 in the shop because it's been a decade since I've seen one. And mm-hmm. as as a snake, though, it ticks every box that a corn snake ticks. It's got all the mm-hmm. pink that you could possibly ask for. It's got these wonderful patterns and colours. It's just as active. It's great. Like it, it, pecos rat snakes, bogotophus, again, just an absolutely singularly beautiful species of snake that feeds well, is tame. You know, it might rattle its tail a bit, but, you know, they're going to calm down. They're going to be fine. And why should they not be considered by a kid who is going to be doing their research at my shop anyway? It's at my behest that they have to go and research what they want to research. So, you know, whether it's African house snakes, could be anything else, Western hognose, all these different things, but just anything apart from just corn and royal. But I was honest, corn snakes are a good snake they're better than a good snake they're a superb snake and on the website they're the highest scoring snake on the website i could have scored it differently i could have skewed it i could have (laughs) changed the variable but again i don't lie the snake got 94 percent overall which is rubbish it means nothing to you guys but it's the way that we scored them the next animal was a dione's rat snake so or, or steps rat snake whatever you want to call it um and that that was ninety three percent. I think Rosie Boas after that, and then it just started whittling down through other things. And and it was just a way of being able. Kids love top trumps. I wanted to be able to do the top trumps bit on the website, and I didn't want it to be stuffy, sniffy, dry. You can't read it. Um, I'm not academic, so I read it. I, I wrote it from a non academic point of view, where the layman could read it and wasn't going to get lost by it. And there is sometimes, I mean, I'm talking to two academics, so I don't want to be offensive, but there is a race to be (laughs) over-complex. There there is a race to be over-complex sometimes. And and you're you're complicating things for the sake of complicating things. And when it comes to teaching beginners how to keep, I I did a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And and the, the, the coach would always say, the art of being able to teach the move is being able to break it down into its component parts. Your competitors, your fighters, or your academics, they just go in and do a flying armbar and breaks breaks break some dude's elbow and that's it. And you ask them what they did and and they're just like, Well, I just did it. I don't know what I did. It's what I do every day in training. But then a teacher has got to be able to break down all the different elements of how we get the elbow locked in so we can break it. And that is what the website was designed to be in theory that we're step by step and it seems almost like baby steps, but sometimes that's what people need, you know, and, and to be walked through a process and hopefully they get a greater understanding as a result. Of it.
0: Yeah. Well, but the nice thing is that there's more than just a bone there. There's meat on the bones with your videos and your gear, your, your information on the website. And that's what I like about it. Because unfortunately, what oftentimes happens with that material is that there's just a skeleton, and it's extremely vague. And that vagueness can lead to ignorance, I feel like. I mean, it's those nerdy little nuggets, like that's what I always tell my students. The nerdy nuggets are what kind of get people excited, because then they realize, well, you can keep a Dion's and a corn snake in a similar way. But there is a little bit of specificity for the Dion's and there's a little bit of specificity for the corn. And I think that a lot of people that are drawn to herpetoculture and snakes, they kind of have that nerdy analytical background anyway. And once you you realize that they're similar, but different, that's where the joy comes into play is it's that like real realization of there is a base model, but we can tweak it a little bit and go this direction. Now we're keeping Dion's and we can keep tweak it this way and keep corns and, Where the hell does a Taiwan beauty snake fit into this? Oh, well, we got to tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. Now we're up to this thing. Like, that's, I I can tell you that if you were to boil down why I like colubrids, that's it in a nutshell is that you cannot get bored. (laughs) It is impossible to get bored with this group of snakes. If you get bored, you're not trying. And that's all, you're not investigating and nerding out enough. And, and, And that's what's kind of awesome about
2: the material you're putting out. Well, the nuance is the interesting part, isn't it? And, yes. and that's, the, that's, that's the bit. We we have a, f- a formula for keeping animals, whether that be we have a hot side, a cold side, a specified basking temperature or coolant. Do we require a humidity hide? Are we heating from above or below? What's our thermostatic control? We can arbitrarily set up our box, which is what it is, a standardised way. And then just tiny little changes can make the difference between a success or a failure with which, whatever taxi you're keeping. But they are tweaks. They're not huge, swinging changes in, in 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 everything that you do. They it is the tiniest of little. Oh well, let's do this. We'll use a different substrate and let's make sure we've got plants in or we're going to give it climbing branches or we might give it a sky hide fixed to the ceiling or we'll do this or we'll do that but the box fundamentally remains the same and the equipment used to be able to heat cool and light it remains the same and it's those little bits and it is tweaking i love old hi-fi i've got like old amplifiers and like <laughs> i love like working with my little graphic equalizer getting my blues and soul to sound just right it's the same sort of thing. <laughs> 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 um, and, and it's I, I think that, that there's huge enjoyment to be had by finding out the nuance and the trigger and the formula for getting it absolutely right um the the, the things with the the videos even though we go into a lot of detail and I've been told that we, we do okay with the detail I try to get it as drilled in as I can because there's always some prick that wants to pull you down <laughs> we, we, we go, <laughs> Regardless of the graph that you put in and the effort that you make to try and disseminate this information to the public, there will always be some smart ass who knows better. So I have to try and make them as watertight as possible. And even to the point where I thought it was a given, but now I have to explain that the the climate data that I'm getting is macro data, not micro data. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not looking for tiny specific changes. I'm looking at seasonal change and how then would this affect our animals? And how would we infer to change the husbandry of the animal throughout the annum? So uh, at which point, what's wet season, what's dry season? When do they coincide? Whether, whether the weather station is on an airfield or not, it is still raining, it is still bright, <laughs> or it's still cool. Um, at, at which point, we, we don't have the data. The data is not there. I am from Sheffield. I'm a working class kid with no academic background. I can't go to Manila to work out what the weather changes on the south face of Mount what's it's called. I don't know. So I will use the macro data to the best of my ability to be able to tell me how I should cycle these animals because all all else I'm doing is reading a care sheet from somebody else who never did the research and just followed what Bob at the show told him how to do it. I'm at least trying to find out the information. It might not be like ultra accurate, but you're doing your best and that's all we can do. And and the same with this podcast, you're disseminating information as best as you possibly can with a view to catching as many people and as many keepers that are en- enamored by this group. And that is what I'm trying to do with the YouTube channel. I just want to trigger people into keeping a group that we all hold dear because they haven't seen the virtue of it yet and we're trying to show them. We want to show them the virtues of this group and the depth and the richness of the vein and the things that they can keep. It's, it's just such an amazing group of animals and, it, uh, and, and vastly underappreciated. I, I can't tell you how excited I was when this podcast uh, became a reality that we were going to finally get something other than pythons and boas. You know that we were gonna, they were gonna have their moment in the in the light, and 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 the subsequent um, episodes that you do with your specialist breeders, there's so much to offer, um, and everybody was gonna benefit. It's just it's brilliant, honestly. Guys, I'm made up that you're making this channel. I think it's great. Oh, well,
1: thank you.
0: <laughs> we're trying, we're trying hard. All we can do. So, is Chance, try it.
1: do you? Yeah. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Just curious, do you in the shop, do you keep anything personally as breeding
2: stock or is everything just primarily available animals? There's two project pairs I keep, which Zach will know all about false water cobras. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's a kid called Rick Pellin who produced some really interesting looking false water cobras a few years back and he termed them King's phase false water cobras. I don't know where the name came from or why it was decided that they were called King's Face. but these animals seem to present. Go. On. go
0: on. I know where the name came from.
2: Go. On. Go on and uh, tell it me. It came from.
0: Rick thought that they looked like king rat snakes. Ah, uh, oh they and, and the okay. black and yellow and the the coloration, mm. uh, and that mm. made me love them even more because I thought it was just some kind of part of my. Yankiness. I was like, well, they were made in Britain, so they're just calling them kings. (laughs) But (laughs) apparently, they were actually like, you know, he was like, no, 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 they look like um, king rats. That's where it came from. Anyway, continue. Okay. Well, I I
2: acquired um, an adult pair of king's phases, except the female is quite special. She almost presents as exanthic, so she's almost silver gray with the black saddles rather than the yellow. We didn't think that we had anything particularly special, but she subsequently became pregnant when she was stuck, and she laid 10 eggs. 65, 70 days later, we're presented with some incredible looking false water cobras that we were like, yes, they oh, were. You know, like, yeah. like, okay. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. So they, they, they stayed there, and, and but they seem, I mean, you probably know better than me, but they seem to present as polymorphic. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem that we understand what's going on with them. So we get a standard dark phase. We get what would present as a hypomelanistic phase, which is, like a washed out, reduced black. We've produced some erythristic versions, which are red. And then we get the king's phases as well. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme nor reason to the proportions of the litter as to what we produce when we produce it. Equally, I am convinced that the animals are not of the same origin as normal falsies. They are nowhere near the same size uh, and their yields of eggs are nowhere the, the, near the same. My female... Mm-hmm. The big female I have is 12 years old. She is around two metres, and that's it. She lays 10 eggs twice a year, every year. They're always fertile, um, and no matter how much food we put in her, she's not getting any bigger. So I've had animals, females, that people have brought in at two years old, maybe two and a half years old, that are already 2.1, 2.2 metres long. And you think to yourself, well yep. hold on my female my female's a decade old. How is she only six and a half feet It doesn't make any sense uh, and and we've had much, fully mature falsies upwards of nearly three meters in length that are built like boa constrictors mainly because people have overfed them and they're dickheads. but that you know they they, they, <laughs> they are that they, they are really really big rotund females that are producing or would produce prodigious amount of eggs." So I don't know anything about where the original origin of the animals is from as far as Bolivia or Paraguay or Brazil. I don't know. But I I know that they do not present the same way as the standard dark phase, commonly encountered, big, heavy, muscular falsies. My females are really quite delicate in build. um, And I kept the best two yellow kings phases that we produced from three years ago and she's sorting it it's her first year so we've had a bit of uh, a shitty litter we had five five good eggs four bad eggs but it's her first year she's a virgin so you know she's got her sort of systems out and stuff. so uh, hopefully like next year but she skipped the she skipped the summer or the, well, the late spring summer lay which mum had and didn't produce until only two weeks ago so She's hung on for what would have been the second second seat, the second uh, clutch of the year. So I'm interested to see, because these were the two brightest yellows, whether that changes the probabilities or the presence of king phases within the litter. What I expect is actually though they're, they're going to be polymorphic again and we won't see any greater prevalence in King's Face. Um but they're they're certainly very interesting. Very interesting snakes. And that's why I kept them. So
0: you have good taste, Chaz. Thank you. Real good, real good taste in the the species you kept for your shot project. <laughs> no, th- those we don't have king phases here in the states, to my knowledge. I, mm-hmm. I believe that that is only in Europe. Currently, I do know that there are a couple people that will import stock from from Europe periodically. Um, but the 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 king phases are there, and then the hypos. Uh, this is a hill I will die on. Um, you all have hypos. Here mm. in America, we say hypos, and what they really are, we should be saying high Xander or high yellow, because mm-hmm. they have the exact same amount of melanistic pigment, the eye masks, the the saddles, that you don't get a browning out like you would in a hypomelanistic animal. Uh, but yeah. the interpretation here in America with, with, or the USA when we say hypomelanistic is that the total amount of Black is reduced; therefore, it's a you know, It's hypomelanistic, but they're still able to produce pure black right. pigments. So, you know, it's a semantics thing. Yes, that's true, but at a genetic level, when you all have a hypo in in, in Britain or Europe, and you you have that reddish coloration and the like pinkish brownish eye mm-hmm. masks, that to me as a scientist is hypomelanism. Uh, yeah. and we don't have the, a couple of those have made their way over here to the States. And, you know, here everybody loses their minds over lavenders and lavenders are great and, and, and all and good, but, um, there's quite a few people, not quite a few, we, we've got a, about a dozen probably people working with lavenders. I'm, I'm looking at my lavender. It lives in my office here at work. Uh, but as far as like those lines and, and different phenotypes and things for the falsies the stuff that you're producing with the Kings and the European hypo, those are the things that like make me geek out because we just don't have those here. And I've heard with the King morph that they like, as they age that the pattern kind of fades away. Is that true or yours
2: holding that? They darken. Well, the part of the reason. Yeah. So part part of the reason that we, kept the original two was these things had to be seen to be believed. They were bumblebee yes. yellow and black. They were <laughs> insane. Um, and we just thought, oh my god. So we kept them as a project. And the, the overriding reputation for King's phases is they don't keep their colour. They, they darken off, muddy out, melanin seems to creep in from the tips backwards and it darkens off the overall complexion of the snake. the the male particularly that we produced three years ago has retained far more yellow than any other King's Mm -hmm. phase. So this is why I'm particularly excited to see what happens when we put that to his sister, who was also the most yellow baby we've ever produced as well. But to say that they are of the same caliber as they were three years ago would be a lie. King's phases are at their Mm -hmm. best at under a year of age.
0: Yeah. It almost looks like they have white, like whitish greyish overtones. Is that correct? Um, I'm going it, off of photographs here, so uh
2: well I mean certainly with some of the ones that we've produced, um we've we've had what presents as a King's face in pattern and contrast and definition, but be orange rather than yellow. And I'm talking tangerine mm. orange. So that's one actually that that I I sold to Crystal Palace Reptiles this year. That was an exceptional animal, uh, and I regret selling it. <laughs> <But> <laughs> these, are the, these are the things that you do. So um, that and and we've had every shade within. We've had ones that present as a king's phase at the front half. So the anterior is the bumblebee and black, but yet the mm-hmm. tail posteriorly is black black. So it, we've Whoa. had almost like a chimera effect come out, which is <laughs> weird. Um, and and yeah. so we, we've had a few weird bits that, that have popped up over the years. But these, as far as the what we consider to be the classic description of the kings, which is super high contrast yellow and black false water cobras, we produced an exceptional pair three years ago that we're now trying to See where that goes, and if there's a rabbit hole to disappear down. And and was it John last week? John Lasseter was it? Um, he was saying about yeah. breeding, breeding F ones together to see what happens. So, you know, it's very much down that vein that we want to go and see if there's anything there to be found. I think Excellent. I'm gonna have to get some false waters now. Yeah. I can hook you up, John or Matt. <laughs> I, I, I got a couple. <laughs> <laughs> <hook up>. <laughs> if we knock some king's faces out we'll i'll find a way of getting them over to you it's not like they're a really restricted be, oh my God. so we can plot something
0: i'd <sighs> <laughs> pass out man <laughs> i was just telling somebody yesterday like I, i'm a big well my background's in field biology and you know i've, I've got this book it's written on the dipsadits and I've never been to Paraguay, Bolivia, or South America or uh, Brazil, South America. And now I'm just scheming all the time. In fact, here's the notebook is right here on my desk somewhere where I'm putting in project ideas and I'm just trying to figure out how in the hell do I get to Paraguay? You know, trying to do this in a global pa- pandemic and yeah. my university wants to put travel restrictions on like literally going to the bathroom. So, you know, this is the right time to be trying to figure this out. But it's going to happen. <laughs> I'm 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 getting there somehow. Uh but in the meantime, just seeing all the phenotypes that have been produced in captivity, I'm not a morph guy until it comes to these things. Like right. these animals are, are are my my bag. Everybody knows that. And the fact that there's these European phenotypes I haven't laid eyes on yet. Um no, but the king phase number one. I think that they're far more interesting than lavenders. Lavenders are cool, uh, but um no the king phase blows a lavender out of the water so if you're listening to this and you're like what are we talking about look them up like stop the podcast now pull over on the side of the road and look up a king phase false water cobra so
2: i'll i'll share some pictures of the babies when they were born and and uh to the, okay. the page, to the to the facebook clubrid and clubroid radio page and then Perfect. See yeah
1: it. definitely that'll
2: be uh, great we can do that um have, do you guys ever get uh the bisonctus, the the banded, the the they, they
0: show up on lists uh, that in the when was that? I think it was the it was actually the mid nineties. Hydrodinastis bisonctus, I think yeah. it's Herman's water snake, is the common name. Yeah. Um some people had them. I think they were in, they were in Europe because uh, mm-hmm. I did a deep dive for the the book and found like this far off page. They are notoriously difficult to keep alive because when they come in, their parasite loads, being that they're aquatic frog eaters, mm-hmm. are astronomical. And then they, through the importing process, obviously, spend a lot of time outside of water. And yeah. they are far more aquatic uh, right. than, um, than, than Gygus is. So it's just the, you know, if they were to ever make it in and be established, it would almost have to be somebody plans a trip gets the permits and goes down and babies them all the way back because it's yeah. just by the time the stock makes it in the hands of the people that can do good, they're pretty much dead is my yeah. understanding.
2: It's something well, that I would assume even with oh. you, with you, you being a Hydro fan, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, yeah. they're not something that I've ever seen on any list. So the by mm-hmm. is one that's always interested me. I always fancy that gone, sorry.
0: Oh no, go for it. That's okay.
2: No, no. I, I, it, it was. Uh, I was just saying. that I, Then one that I've never seen, and and that there's a few South American bits that I've got on my list that I desperately want to add. I'd love to get. Is it clear? Clear the Musserana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to be able to get all of those as well if I could, but they again. I think that there's difficulties with a multitude of different South American countries and the export and then yes. nobody's really ever produced them. And then they're supposed to be as cannibalistic as all hell and want to eat their sexual partners and, and that makes <laughs> yeah. it slightly complex. So, you know, there's a bunch of stuff down there. I'd love to be able to get my hands on. So
0: Yeah, no, but I think this is up there for me as well, but it, it, they would have to be brought in and they would have to get into the hands of the right people. Um yeah. I did see on a price list, I don't remember whose price list it was, but I did actually see Bisynctus on a price list this year. Mm-hmm. And I had this synapse of like, all right, we're getting those. And then I remembered the horror stories and was like, yeah, I don't know <laughs> if I want to necessarily dive down that path. Plus, I certainly don't want to bring in the other genera of, you know, the other member of the genus mm-hmm. when I'm sitting on, I think it's like 5.10 is what my collection of gygas right now and then i'm gonna bring in a wild caught hydrodynasties to spread the pathogens into this you know i don't want to really deal with that so yeah. that was kind of my take on it but Anywho. I, I don't know
2: <laughs> yes saying that uh, along with the story about a cookery snake earlier one of my most painful bites was off a south american taxi. So i i had some machete surveying come in <laughs> um and mm-hmm. they 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 screwed me up pretty good so, you, you cookery snakes, yeah, they hurt. These things, I thought that somebody had attacked me with like fighting starts. I was absolutely pillar <laughs> to post and it bled <laughs> for hours. It just would not stop. And they were just so closely together, just parallel lines of, <laughs> of blood everywhere. It was awful.
0: Is, is that Chironius? Is that the genus?
2: Yeah, so Chironius First, yeah
0: Chiron artist.
2: yeah, so yeah, mm-hmm. they, 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 they messed me up pretty good.
0: <laughs> well, well, they actually have—I believe they have. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they have a Duvernoy secretion that gets rid of platelets, so you just kind of bleed whenever yeah, you get that, tagged that by them.
2: That definitely happens. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that definitely happened. <laughs> okay. I, I bled and bled and bled and bled and bled and bled. I didn't understand why I was still bleeding. Four That's hours, why. yeah. So there you go. You mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I'm not, not going to do that again in a hurry. <laughs> so, is there another
0: species? I think you said there were two that you had that were projects, or was it just the hydrodynasties
2: Just just the hydrodynasties so. okay. There's two. Pa- there's two pairs. There's there's mum and oh, dad. Oh, two pairs. Gotcha. There's mum and dad who were the originals, but mum is odd because she almost presents as exanthic. So that's why Mm -hmm. I keep it. You know, there's no yellow on her whatsoever. Um, And then there's there's the kids, which I've raised for three years, and and they were the best yellows I've ever produced. So I just want to see where we go with that. I know that mum and dad are unrelated, so I'm not overly concerned about breeding the F1s together. I don't think there's going to be any major issues to come from that. So gotcha
0: all righty well so what's the future goals for the shop just keep on keeping on or do you is the the sky the limit like what do you see we got a little bit more life to live here Chaz. what's going to go on with snakes and
2: adders in that time uh i i think that we've definitely reached the point where we need a bigger shop so if you, if, I mean, if you take a moment to look at our stock list, a lot of people don't believe that we are the size we are. They think we're a super centre. So they walk in expecting <laughs> something. And we are a boutique pet centre. The shop floor is 350 square feet. That's it. <laughs> and, 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 and then my baby snakes are in a 280 square foot office in the back where I do my paperwork. So every available inch has been used. So we are a tiny shop, even by small shop standards. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, we've definitely reached a point where we need to blossom and grow, but we need to do it in a right way. And it isn't necessarily introducing more animals, just more space. I'd like to have some like mm-hmm. plants in there and things, and just be, just be easier to move around. We're me and the girls are kind of all on top of one another when we're all in together, and we're trying to do the maintenance and the feeds and cleaning everything out. So it would be nice to, be able to have some more space, but then it is a monumental task to reconstruct a reptile shop, uh, and yeah. and and starting from scratch now we need. 50 or 70 digital day-night dimming thermostats. We need 50 or 70 halogen spot bulbs, 50 or 70 T5 lighting systems of whatever strength it is that I decide to do. And I may even daisy chain those for the lizards so that the spectrum's more rich and replete for them. So you can imagine just the sheer cost, like either of you guys with your breeding rooms, if you had to start Mm -hmm. from scratch and do it all again, it's a formidable task. And I am not yes. gonna lie. You know, the, the truth of it is, the idea of moving and starting again in another shop scares me shitless. So, like, <laughs> I've got, I've got yeah, to build. I've got to build myself up to that. At that point, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, because I'll be the one wiring it and doing it and putting it together. Yeah. And oh, Jesus, the idea just goes through me. Oh, so yeah, not my not not my idea of fun at all.
1: Oh, Oh, man. No, that's not a not a good, pleasant experience, Um, because even last year when I moved, instead of bringing the old racks with me, I ended up purchasing newer racks for a number of mine and still the instrumental task. And I mean, my mental status was (laughs) done, especially setting up 300 breeders, trying to make sure everything was proper. Because obviously you don't want to keep the animals in bags or tubs very long. And, you know, whenever you do a move or anything like that, especially with breeding stock, you are going to lose animals just because of the stress factor of it. And, no, I I completely
2: understand where you're going with that one. Yeah, I'm hiding away from that. So until it becomes patently obvious the shop cannot run anymore where it is we're going to stay exactly where we are and trip over each other all the time because I'm too much of a chicken to take stop. <laughs> to so that's pretty much the way, the way it is at the moment. So, Oh
1: man. So cheers, you, you know, um, obviously over the years from owning the store and you've seen the hobby go many different ways. Um, and obviously it's continuously evolving from your perspective, you know, being in the storefront, what do you think the future holds in this hobby, especially not only from clulubrid sense, but just a general aspect of keeping captive reproduction um, importation I, even too as well. Cause I think COVID has changed a
2: number of factors in animal keeping in general. The, the, I think the hobby is its own worst enemy sometimes. And that there are horror stories that appear and from a colubrid specific perspective we're re- relatively well insulated there isn't too too much that's salacious in the group that we're discussing, but some of the other groups within the hobby really need to get their shit together because the, your your big monitor keepers your python keepers you know you've got to be watertight because it's so easy for the general public to get hold of that that uh optic, the, the wrong optic and that optic then plays into the anti-mantras uh, and the people that don't want you keeping these animals in the first place and it's it's very easy to segue into an area where realistically we'd be far more comfy if you'd have basically engaged your brain before you did stuff. The, the shop will continue to push forward with its educational sort of slant in in as much as the hobby is only as good as its next generation. That's the, the, the be all and end all of this. We're both, we're all cracking on. We ain't getting any younger. There's a generation that's leaving us that were our mentors that taught us everything we know. We're only as good as the generation we prepare to take our place. If you don't take it seriously and you half arses or you don't, you devalue the kids. And don't invest in them the way that they need to be invested. The hobby will be poorer for it. The kids are everything here. The start they get is the be all and end all. We can, we can be as educated as we want to be. We can know what we know. Unless we share it and disseminate it in the best way for these kids to move forward, then it was all for naught. And that's, that's basically my whole ethos in a nutshell. Pass it on. Pass it on.
0: That's a perfect way to end the show. <laughs> agree with that 100%. I mean, I'm a teacher for crying out loud. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we definitely have to. And I think that one thing, just to add on to that, agree with everything you said, is that whether we want to or not, us um, older keepers need to understand that the younger generation, it, they they learn and they absorb information through formats that we may not understand yeah. At all. And you can either you know, point fingers, resist it and call them stupid, or you can basically man up, be an adult and possibly learn something new and learn how to communicate with them. And if you do that, you know, all, all's well in the world, because I love my books, but online, we have to have an online presence for information, too. And that's what you're doing. That's what's utterly fantastic. So, yeah, we all just need to talk to each other. That's it. Yep. All right. Let's all hold hands now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, well, this was absolutely fantastic. Um, had a great time. Uh, good conversation. So if, if people want to find you, how do they find you online?
2: Where do they go? You can, you can find us on Facebook, uh, search Snakes and Adders. Uh, I'm on Instagram as chas.snakesandadders. And you just search snakes and Adders on YouTube and you'll see the viper's head and you know, you're in the right place.
0: All right. Excellent. So thank you for coming on with us. This has been fantastic. We'll have you on again in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm
2: certain of that. I, so I, honestly, I, any everything. final
0: statements? I'll go just, for it, Chaz.
2: No, no, it was, it was just to say, thank uh, Honestly, I was really touched that you invited me on. Um, thank you ever so much. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to come on again. And no final statements, just peace and love, guys. All the best. And I'll speak to you soon. All righty. So
0: thank you, Chaz. Uh, If you're looking for Matt and I, we have a Facebook page for Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. And, you know, I just gave that great big speech about learning how to do things in other ways. And I cannot for life, me figure out how to share that damn thing on other pages and such. So if, if you wouldn't mind <laughs> listeners going on to Facebook and just searching for our, if you're on that platform, our, uh, our page and liking it, uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Cause that's where we're putting all the new information. Whenever we have a new episode drop or, uh, like Chaz said, he's going to be putting up the pics of the, the, the King falsies there, which we encourage you to do so you can find us there. Um, you can find me on Facebook, just Zach Loafman, uh, or you go to Instagram and look up Dr. Crawdad, and that's me. And sure, I I, I share just like Matt does. Everything relevant to the podcast goes on the Instagram page. I kind of leave Facebook more for my friends and family. Uh, but Instagram's just snakes and crawdads. It's a pretty good thing for me, actually. So that's me. Um, where can we find you, Matt?
1: Oh, you can find me at Sarpamitra and Sarpamitra USA on Instagram.
0: All righty. So, this wraps another episode. Uh, let us know your thoughts, message us. And if you have requests for individuals, people, subjects, species, taxa, herpeticulture you know, elements that you'd like for us to talk about, uh, by all means, reach out to us. People have done that and and we're responding and we, we've got some shows coming up that I know you all are going to love. So with that, thank you for listening to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio and have a good one. Later.